I've just been uh, beaming this week for a number of reasons, but one is walking in the back there, Marsha McAvoy. Um, we got to meet Monday to plan this worship set, and this is the first time she's led since uh, starting cancer treatment last fall. So it's just been such, uh, for me, uh, a sign of God's faithfulness to get to see Marsha back up, and Jeannie's going to start leading again soon. And oh, just, it's good to have, uh, have the team back. The band's getting back together. Love it. Love it. Ah. July 21st, 2010, Alan and Violet Large experience something that many people dream about, some obsess over, most sort of hope for, but only one in over 100 million people will actually ever experience. They won a lottery worth over $10 million. $11,255,272 to be exact. Here's their picture. Couldn't happen to a sweeter couple. According to the spurious yet entertaining web source, The Daily Beast, the following scenarios are more likely to occur to you than winning a lottery of over $10 million. You're more likely to die by being crushed by a vending machine than win a lottery of $10 million or more. Uh, every year, uh, 2.2 Americans die from being crushed by a vending machine. So snap carefully for people. You are more likely to die in an airline-related terrorist attack. Your chances, 1 in 25 million. You are more likely to have identical quadruplets, the odds of which are 1 in 15 million, uh, with this little comment on uh, Daily Beast. I identical quadruplets would be adorable, but you wouldn't be able to support them because you probably won't win the lottery. You are much more likely to become President of the United States of America. The chances there are 1 in 10 million than winning a lottery of 10 million or more. You're more likely to die from being left-handed. 4.4 million, 1 in 4.4 million people die every year from being left-handed people trying to use right-handed apparatuses, power tools, things like that, and getting themselves killed. Isn't that amazing? You're more likely to be struck by lightning or die from flesh-eating bacteria than win a lottery of over $10 million. You can take that beautiful picture down. Alan and Violet retired in 1983. Alan worked as a welder his whole career for 30 plus years. Violet had been employed in a number of confectionery companies and uh, makeup companies. They retired in a small town in Nova Scotia, which is where they were living when they defied the odds and won over $11 million. Of course, what everyone wants to know is what, what did they do with the money? What would you do? What could you do with $11 million? What possibilities would that $11 million open up to you? What experiences could you have that maybe you can't have right now? What debts would you pay off? It's an intriguing question. Here's what Alan and Violet decided to do. They took a look at their lives. They already lived quite simply. They downsized uh, from the time uh, when they had been working. At this stage in their life, they didn't have much debt to carry. So they took $200,000 and helped their children and grandchildren pay down some of their debts. But then they did what is almost unthinkable to most people in our culture. They gave the remaining $11 million away. They gave it a large portion to the hospital where Violet was concurrently receiving chemotherapy treatment down the, down the street in town. 
They gave a large sum to their local church, a community they had been partners of for, for several years. They gave money to the local fire department, to the cemetery, to hospice, to the Red Cross, to the Salvation Army. The list goes on. The story was all over the newspaper. I remember it. I saved it just for such a time as this, uh, four years ago. Because what touched me is that their story isn't about the money. And it's not about what they did with the money. The story is that this couple really believed that they were more blessed in giving and having loose hands with something that wasn't even theirs in the first place. They are... Or they knew the value of money and possessions, and yet they weren't controlled and owned by their money and possessions. They are the opposite of the rich young ruler, the story we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 19. In that story, the wealthy young man obeyed many of the commandments of God. He wanted to know from Jesus, what else could I do to inherit eternal life or to grasp eternal life? Jesus, recognizing that this man's main problem was an idolatry problem, it was an over-attachment, an over-dependence on his own wealth, he told him what to do. He said, here's what you do, friend. You sell your possessions. Then you take the money and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. Well, it was too much. The man could not bring himself to choose following Jesus over his many possessions. Now Peter and his disciples were astonished. In their eyes and in the eyes of their culture, this rich young ruler was the epitome of the good Israelite. He was, if you were thinking in the dictionary, what would the prototypical uh, Israelite young man look like? It would be the rich young ruler. He was wealthy. He was well liked. He followed the law. He gave of his, his alms, which is giving to the poor, and he gave his tithes. He was probably a regular at synagogue. Obviously, they must have thought, God was pleased with this man if he was pleased with anyone. And now, Jesus is saying that it is, e- is hard for people like that to get into to the kingdom of heaven. It is hard for people uh, with wealth attachments to enter the kingdom. So Peter replies what was on everyone's mind, Who then can be saved? And Jesus just says it's impossible for man to be saved. But all things are possible with God. To which Peter replies, Lord... We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? In other words, Jesus, is it worth it? Is it worth it to put your call and your mission above everything else, above all of the norms that culture's told me to work for and strive for? Is it worth it to follow you, Jesus? It's not just a question that Peter was asking. I think it's the question. Because most of us deep down struggle with the fear that if we don't look out for our own interests, no one will. And let's be honest, there is a sense, a very real sense to where that is true in our fallen and broken world. We live in a world of survival. There's a show called Survivor. This, how many seasons old is that thing? It's just, yeah, because there's something about it, this primal instinct of survival. We're taught from an early age how to become depend, or independent. And there's honestly a tension I feel as a parent that if I only teach my three daughters how the world ought to be, they won't be very well equipped for how the world really is. 
Right? It's a strange tension that, that, that I live in. But in the beginning, it was never supposed to be this way. In the beginning, humans were created to be in right relationship with God. He placed us in the garden where like water comes up out of the bottom of it. And apparently, I think there wasn't weeds because the weeds don't, at least the weeds don't get mentioned until after the fall. So you've got all of this, this stuff there that's nourishment. The plants are producing, they're abundant. Adam, Eve, our early ancestors, they're there in the garden. They, they walk in communion with God, unbroken communion. Uh, one of the descriptions that they walk in the early morning, cool of the morning with God. You don't hear about uh, infighting amongst this couple. They actually get along. You know, they, they work together. They're given meaningful vocation to steward the earth, to, uh, to, to commune, to take care of the animals, to reflect God's glory to His world. We are designed to have a healthy, that's the qualifier, a healthy dependence on God, a relationship of trust and wholeness. But when temptation caused our ancestors uh, to question God, they questioned, wait a minute, maybe God doesn't have our best interests in mind. Maybe there's something we are missing out on. And this nagging doubt led to rebellion and disobedience and shame. And despite God continuing to reach out in love in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, through, through uh, the Spirit today and through His church today, despite all of that reaching out in love, isn't it true that we all have some sort of suspicion? Some might even be jaded or cynical. Haven't we all been burned one too many times? Been disappointed one too many times? Been hurt one too many times? And frankly, we've all done our share of the hurting one too many times. We can't even trust ourselves. How can we then trust one another? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? I've never met a person I could trust that much. And Jesus gives us a resounding yes. Yes, yes, it's a magnificent investment to follow me. Follow me and you'll have eternal life. That's typical churchy talk, right? You will also have meaningful life in eternal life. In this conversation with Peter, he talks about the 12 thrones. We're not just going to be playing harps and like eating bonbons or whatever your idea of heaven is. Um, we are going to be involved in meaningful work, stewarding whatever uh, world continues on, whatever new creation God brings in. But it's not just about tomorrow or after you die. This isn't just about the future. The kingdom of God is breaking in even now. So when you start giving up living for yourself so you can follow Jesus, you join this community, the church, who are all following Jesus. So, you gave up maybe something, some houses or property. Guess what? Maybe that was your deal that you had to give up. But you have millions of brothers and sisters in Christ who that wasn't their deal. And they can steward their wealth. And so guess what? Now you have millions of houses and properties and vacation places. And for some people, you know, they, they gave up. And, and, and this is, might be true for some of you, but... You know, in some other cultures, I'm thinking where Bethany is in Egypt right now, in some places like um, Iran and Syria, if you were in a Muslim family and you become a Christian, you literally lose your family. So some people have left mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and lifelong friends to follow Jesus. He says, 
You don't have to wait till the next life to have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and friends. You get that in the community of the church. And he's talking about true shalom that comes with, through the community of people, through us as a small expression of a larger church. When we come together and we follow Jesus and we say no to some things so that we can say yes to Jesus, we really uh, have this wonderful community. As I look out, I see all kinds of different gifts and abilities and things to offer and none of us has something, uh, none of us has everything. And we all have something to offer. And that's the beauty of following Jesus in the present. Now, I bring all this up because Jesus means to encourage Peter, and you, and me, and everyone who has said yes to follow Jesus. And he, he ends this encouragement to Peter in Matthew 19, verse 30, where he says, But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Many uh, who the world counts as elite, or favorite, or VIPs, or successful, or blessed. Many of them, not all of them, and I want to make that clear. Many of them will be last in the kingdom of heaven. They won't have those positions of prestige. Some of them will, because they steward those things really well. But many that the world despise and look down upon, many like a certain fisherman named, uh, named Peter, who left his father's business and his boats and nets to follow an itinerant preacher, many like Matthew, who left a lucrative tax-collecting business, many like Simon the Zealot, who had a name for himself as being a political revolutionary, many who left those positions in order to follow Jesus will be elevated to first place in the kingdom of heaven. That's good news. If you've sacrificed, if you're making sacrifices to follow Jesus, that's very good news. Now everything I've said up to this point is an introduction for what is about to follow. Our text this evening is Matthew 20 verses 1 through 16. And it's intimately tied to all of those things I just said from Matthew 19, stuff we covered last week. It's tied to this question by Peter, in a nutshell, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Would you stand with me please as we read Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. I'm just going to pick up on 1930 here. So Jesus says, many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out, and about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give to you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, No one's hired us. He said, You go into the vineyard too. Now when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. 
And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye greedy or envious because I am good and generous? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Lord, please open your word to us. Help us to hear your heart behind this parable. May it penetrate our hearts. May it change the way we relate to you, the way we relate to one another. May it ultimately help us to trust you all the more. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first thing we have to do with this passage that we're looking at, Matthew 20, 1 through 16, is we have to recognize that we have just now moved into a different genre. We were in narrative before in Matthew 19, where the story is actually taking place. Peter actually goes to Jesus and says, who then can be saved? Jesus is actually talking to a rich young guy and confronting him on his idolatry. Jesus now wants to illustrate a point to Peter. And so he tells a parable. He tells a story that Jesus is making up to prove a point or to make a point. Now, a parable always has some analogies with real life. Like Jesus is going to use an example here of day laborers and a landowner because that was a common scenario in his world. But parables are not allegories. Okay, so that means um, allegories are when every single person and plot and object in a story has some kind of equivalent in, uh, in your life or my life. And that's not, that's not what this is. This is not an allegory. So what we have to do to understand it is kind of get behind it a little bit, try and understand uh, the context. In the days and culture that Jesus is talking to Peter and the disciples, society was separate separated into a few really standard and hard and fast social classes. There were the uber elite, those in, in leadership who were the top one and a half, two percent of all of society. They were so much wealthier than everyone else. It was completely opposite. Below the extremely wealthy were the almost as extremely wealthy, wealthy the landowners that made up the top 10, 15, maybe 18% of that whole culture. Then there were freed men and women and slaves. That was the vast majority of the population in first century Palestine. Freed men and women and slaves. Now, one would think that it would be ideal or best, if you couldn't be one of the elites, to be a free person. And I would tend to agree with you because I'm an American and that's how we think. But think about this for a minute. For many in this world, the life of slavery was preferable. Here's why. For household slaves or even slaves of landowners who are at least kind and generous, Life was predictable, consistent. If you owned a slave, which were 600 denarius each, uh, they were treated much better than any kind of like slavery from the 19th and early 20th century in our, in our situation here. Um, the philosophers were often slaves. Physicians were slaves. Lawyers were often slaves. So these people lived in homes where they were supported by patrons, and their patrons would want to make sure that they were healthy, that they were getting enough food to eat and, and water and 
wine to drink and things like that because they, they didn't want to have to go buy another one. Okay? So the difference is that a slave got their meals taken care of, some kind of honor and status even in certain situations. A free person, a day laborer, does not know where their next meal is coming from. They have no one else looking out for their well-being, and they can easily be abused. So the day laborers sit on the corner at the market, and in times of harvest, the, the landowners would come and say, Okay, I need four of you. If there's 20 of them there, you better hope you're the best-looking one, the strongest-looking one. Uh, you might get passed over. Typically, the wage was a denarius a day. That's about enough to eat on. A half denarius you could eat on. But if you're supporting a family, one denarius a day would hardly make it. Okay. In this parable, the landowner has gone out to hire day laborers. The story tells us that the landowner and the day laborers agreed to a denarius, that they would receive a denarius at the end of a day's work. That was the going rate, and pretty standard. But as the story goes, it gets stranger and stranger. The landowner keeps going back to the market to find more laborers. The workday starts at 6 a.m. That's when the first uh, laborers were hired. But then he goes out again at 9 a.m. And again at noon. And again at 3. And finally at 5 p.m. He goes out and hires more laborers when the workday is done at 6. Now assuming that the market is... 10-minute walk, 15-minute walk from the field. I mean, how many markets are right by the field? Uh, those guys that are hired at 5 or getting off at 6 might work 20 minutes, half hour, 40 minutes at best. Very strange. 6 p.m. comes around. Landowner calls the foreman. Okay, time to pay our laborers for the day. I want you to go ahead and pay the going rate and start with the last guys we hired first. Okay? So he starts with the guys, guys he just hired at five who have worked maybe an hour, pays them a denarius. I'm sure they're pretty happy about that. Then the guys he hired at three, the noon, the nine. Then the guys he first hired were assuming he just paid those last guys a denarius. What are we going to get? Two? Three denarius? This is going to be good for us, right? Of course, he just gives them the one, the one that they agreed upon. Now, the first laborers begin grumbling and complaining under their breath about the fact that they got paid the same wage that people who did a fraction of the work got paid. They thought they should get more money because they worked longer in the vineyard. There's something about that that just, doesn't that sound wrong? <laughs> What do we make of the story? What is this trying to communicate? Why is Jesus telling us this story? Well, first we recognize that this parable ends with a sentence from Jesus that says, The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Does that sound familiar? At the end of 19, Jesus encourages those who have made sacrifices to follow Him. He says, The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Those who the world views as firsts won't be firsts based on the world's criteria. Those who do what it takes to follow Jesus will be first. Peter and his disciples were following Jesus. They had left things to follow Jesus. So he's saying, don't be discouraged. The world might look down on you, but things are not like uh, they appear in the world. Things in the kingdom work differently. That's good news for us as well. 
following Jesus will mean sacrifice. I know for most of you, has meant sacrifice. It means we make lifestyle choices that further God's kingdom and help our neighbors rather than always putting ourselves first. So it's good to hear that the ones the world might call last will be first. Right? But there's another danger here. Isn't it also true, just admitting the sinfulness of our heart and the way that we can misconstrue things, isn't it true that we can turn our following Jesus into a little competition as well? It's so easy to look around at other followers of Jesus and compare ourselves. The good news is that the last will be first... And the first will be last. But the warning at the end of this parable is that the first will be last and the last will be first. So we've given up everything to follow Jesus. The world sees us as the last. Jesus is saying, I will raise you up. You will be first. But then, don't we say, yes! First in the kingdom of heaven! I gave up more than this person or that person. I must be better. And so Jesus is warning us, be careful now. Be careful, because the first will be last and the last will be first. Luke's Gospel has the story of two men going to the temple to pray. One was a religious man, a man who followed all the commandments of God. He gave his tithes on time and in full. On top of his tithes, he gave to the poor. That's almsgiving. And it was required, so he did it. No more, no less. He's respected. He comes in to pray at the temple, his eyes lifted up towards God. He's sure God is hearing his prayers. I'm pretty sure that he's sure that God is as proud of him as he is proud of himself. Next to him, another man comes to pray. This man is a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. He didn't pretend to be anything special. When he goes to pray, he doesn't look up. He looks down. He beats his own chest. It's Lord. Have mercy on me. The righteous man, God, I've been good this week, says this, Lord, I thank you. I am not like this sinner. I thank you. I'm not like this man. Is there a, a, a sense in which this attitude might from time to time show up in your heart? Because sometimes it does in mine. You know, maybe you're a partner here at Lettered Streets and you've been here since the beginning and, you know, you're here uh, more times than not and you're in about 14 different ministries and you, you, know, you cook the food and you set up everything. And you notice, you know, this other, these other people have been here almost as long and they don't, they don't work as hard as I do. I'm kind of mad about that. I kind of feel like I'm a little more close with God about that. Maybe Pastor Chris notices me more. It doesn't matter what I think, by the way. Isn't there a sense that this can be something um, that happens in our spiritual disciplines? That, uh, you know, maybe things are going really well with us and we're having these great times of prayer and we've, you know, gotten into maybe some fasting uh, on a regular basis or whatever it is and you start talking to your friends and you realize like, I'm kind of of more spiritually mature than they are, you know. I'm sure it's going to pay off. Sure, I'm a little tighter with God. But what about, you know, sometimes when... You're hanging out with maybe other Christians or whatever, and and you think, you know, I know it's okay to like have a beer once in a while, but I don't, and uh, I'm tighter with God. Or, you know, I heard that person smokes. 
And there's a, there's a way that those things can creep into our hearts and make us feel closer to God than someone else, more important than someone else, outranking someone else. I believe that part of the reason Jesus gives us this parable is just a warning for our own spiritual pride. He wants to encourage us. He wants to say, brothers and sisters, children, when you humble yourselves and follow me, I'm going to lift you up. You're going to be blessed. But that doesn't mean we get to be arrogant about it or to think that in some way we can earn that. Remember that just back in Matthew 18, for those of you who have been following along in the series, the disciples were arguing with each other about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows how easily we can turn a gift into an accomplishment, how easily we can turn this wonderful grace into a wage that we think we've earned. Notice that in the beginning of this parable, the term wage is never thrown around about the agreement between the laborer and the landowner. Uh, fun fact, that, that word in Greek for agreement is the same root as symphony. So imagine that this agreement between the landowner and the laborer was symphonic. It was this har- it was They totally agreed that a denarius would be... Um, uh, what they would receive for working. It's not ever pitched as a wage. You do this, you get that. In fact, the only time I can think of where wage is really thrown around in the New Testament has to deal with the wages of sin, which is death. I think we should be careful in trying to conceive of our relationship with God in terms of wages. We should be careful that we don't, you know, hey God, let's settle accounts. I think I've been really good. Because he can come back with, son, your, your wage is death. Let's be careful like those first laborers of trying to convince God to be fair. God's not fair. And I'm okay with that. God's not fair. He does not give us our wages. He does not give us death. Instead, He gave Himself that we might not have our wages, but might have life. Amen? That's really good news. God is not a God who gives with expectation of reciprocation. He doesn't give favors so that He gets paid back. He's gracious without expecting a wage. If then, this relationship with God, this rescue from Jesus, is all gift, then no matter who you are, you have no no room to compare yourself with other people. That's not what this is about. In fact, we ought to rejoice when people begin to find life in the kingdom. We ought to rejoice. It's like the story of the prodigal son where the younger son dishonors his dad. Basically says, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. Leaves the house, goes and squanders it on women and drinking. And finds himself in the pigsty. Destitute. No honor. His son, uh, the, the man's oldest son, defends the family honor obeys day in, day out. He's the heir of the estate. He's there. He remains with his dad. He he remains strong. He remains loyal. 
Well, one day, of course, the younger son returns. The father is overcome with joy and decides to throw this amazing party to celebrate the return of his restored lost son. He decides to lead in generosity. The older son grumbles, you know, I worked for you every day. Never once did you throw me a party of this magnitude. The older son had been obedient, but he thinks his obedience should buy him favoritism, first place, special honor. It bothers him to see his free-spirited little brother, the brother who shamed the family name, coming home and says, I'm sorry, and he gets a party. I can see why he'd be ticked. I'm an older brother, I have that problem. In reality, the older son is the heir to the estate. In reality, the older son has not been wronged because the little brother got a party. What he's upset about is that his father is not being fair. His father does not act properly. A proper ancient Near Eastern father would have made a public display. When that little dude started coming down the street, he would have been out there to meet him and to grab him by the scruff and to take him to the elders of the city and say, I am a man of honor, therefore I will shame this son who has dishonored my family. And in doing that, he would regain honor in the sight of the elders. And, guess who? In the sight of the older son who would inherit that family name and that estate. Do you see where this is going? By going out and expressing grace, he dishonors further the family. The older son's name is further dishonored. Because the father's not fair. Because the father is gracious and generous and loving just like God. This parable is not here to teach us about good business sense. Paying your employees a full day's wages for an hour's work is a sure way to go out of business really quick. If you're a landowner, I don't know what kind of farming he was doing, but you don't know how to bid your employees, right? Like, you don't know how many guys it's going to take to harvest your field. You have to go out like five times during the day to hire more. That's not a good business plan. It shows a complete lack of competence, actually. The parable is not about business. It's not about workers' rights. It's not about that type of ethic. It's about the kingdom and the economy of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God runs on an economy of gift. This parable is about the gracious, gift-giving nature of the Father. Look at how He continues to pursue the lost, those waiting to be put to work, those waiting for meaningful life. If you've ever been out of work... I know this, in our culture, it affects men and women uh, almost the same now, which is great. Um, but, but I know, especially for a lot of guys, if, if you have been used to being independent or a breadwinner, and you've been out of work, if you've maybe been hurt, or you've got laid off, or you've got fired, and you've been struggling, it's not just about not having money. In fact, that's really not the issue. The issue is you, you're, you start to question your worth. Do I have purpose? What am I waking up for every day? 
And I think where we truly find our worth, men, women, children, is how we're employed in the kingdom of heaven. It's about the life we're about. Is it meaningful? Is it investing in something that's lasting, like love? Like pursuing God's will. Those are the things that matter. And I think that this parable has something to say about this landowner going out, continuing to draw in unemployed people who are just idle. And that last... Oh, I love that last group. Why haven't you been hired? Nobody noticed us. We've been here. Nobody nobody noticed us. There's a lot of people in our lives that don't feel noticed. Some of you might not feel very noticed. Maybe in the world, maybe in the church. This is the kind of God we have, though, who goes out and pursues. This is a God who notices. This is a God who seeks, actively pursues. I love it. Ah. If you've ever felt unwanted, undervalued, like you don't fit... Maybe like you can't contribute. Know this, the Father is pursuing you. That you, not just somebody in a story or the person sitting next to you, but you are actually precious to Him. You have value. You have infinite worth. You are worth so much that God would put on flesh and die to, to pay the wages of sin and death itself. And the morning workers were grumbling that the landowner didn't appear to be fair. They answered, uh, Jesus answered them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me in the beginning for Denarius? Take what's yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what's my own? Or is your eye evil, envious? Because I am good or generous. God is not fair. He's better than fair. He's generous and gracious and full of love for you and every person you will ever meet. Let's rejoice in that. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that uh, you are better than we could imagine. In fact, you're so good, and this gracious, gift-giving nature of yours, this economy of gift, is so foreign that we confess our, our reluctance and ability, distrust, skepticism maybe. That can it really be that good? Can you really be that good? We've never met anyone that good before. Holy Spirit, I pray for your ministry of conviction. Your ministry of softening hearts made out of stone and wood and turning them into hearts of flesh. I pray for your ministry, Holy Spirit, of opening up the Word of God and making it transformative and performative in our lives. Help us, Holy Spirit, to receive and accept this good Word as gift. Amen.